0: This is Guns N' Butter.
1: There's
2: Lawyers who have looked at these filings have said, what has happened to the criminal justice system? Well, what has happened is that political assassinations in this country are given the same fate that the truth is with respect to the 9-11 events of this country, the Oklahoma City events of this country, the first bombing at the World Trade Center, all of that, these things are treated the same way and they're, they're just s- sloughed off.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, William F. Pepper. Today's show, political assassinations and the criminal justice system. William Pepper is an attorney and author and a poet. As the author of three books on the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, he is also the chief attorney for Sirhan Sirhan and has worked for over a decade to get him a retrial. Pepper delivered a keynote address at the historic 9-11 Truth Conference in Chicago in 2006 and works closely with a distinguished team of lawyers now assembling a 9-11 legal strategy. He delivered the keynote address at the 13th Annual 9-11 Film Festival at the Grand Lake Theatre in Oakland, California on September 11, 2017. Why 9-11 Truth Still Matters. We begin with introductions. This next introduction is one of the most important introductions I've ever done. Dr. William F. Pepper is a human rights lawyer most known for his defense of James Earl Ray in the trial for the murder of Martin Luther King Jr. Pepper is the author of Orders to Kill and an act of state, and has been active in attempts to charge George W. Bush with war crimes. Yeah. He was appointed a barrister of the United Kingdom and practices international human rights law in the U.S. and from London, and has convened a seminar on international human rights at Oxford University. He has represented governments and heads of state and has appeared as an expert on international law issues. Today he resides in New York, where he continues to practice law. Pepper was a close friend and collaborator of Dr. King's. His latest book, The Plot to Kill King, reveals dramatic new details of the night of the murder the 1999 trial, and why Ray was chosen to take the fall for a government-sanctioned assassination of the civil rights movement's greatest leader. In the book, Pepper shares the evidence and testimonies that show Ray was a scapegoat chosen by those who viewed King as a dangerous revolutionary. His findings make the book one of the most important of our time, the uncensored story of the murder of an American hero that contains disturbing revelations about the obscure inner workings of our government and how it continues, even today, to obscure the truth. Dr. Pepper has been heard on Guns and Butter three times, both with an act of state and the plot to kill King, it's a great honor to introduce William Pepper, but first I'd like to bring on his publicist, Byron Bellitzos, with an important message. Just one
3: more item by way of introduction of uh, Bill Pepper. Uh, Bill never stops. Bill also took on the case of Sirhan Sirhan, and as you all remember, he's the accused assassin of Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, the previous lawyer for that passed away in 2007 and and gave that evidence over to Bill. And Bill took that case on pro bono uh, for the last 10 years. So I invite you to, to uh, think about uh, what Bill has to say about that. And remember that th- this is all pro bono work that Bill does. We're going to ask you for a contribution afterwards uh, toward that if you're so moved. And the actual... result of his work is a petition that he's filed with the Organization of American States uh, because he's exhausted all the avenues for justice in this country. Big surprise, huh? And he's had to take it into the domain of international law so you can hear all about that. So it's uh, my honor and privilege to to bring on my collaborator and friend, Bill Pepper, our keynote speaker tonight. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much. And uh, thank you for coming, uh, all of you, whom, none of whom I can see but I s- <laughs> certainly, certainly can hear you. Um, this is the first time I've been to Oakland and uh, I certainly hope to return and I certainly want to say at this very uh, outset the admiration I have for the people who have struggled for the 9-11 truth to be known and finally to be aired to the people of this country and the world. I have a great deal of respect for uh, Richard Gage, the architects of engineers, and and a number of other organizations who have relentlessly tried to bring that truth forward. And all of your documentarians who have struggled so to put forward on the screen visual images that are undeniable in terms of the truth that has been concealed from the people of this republic for so long i uh, also have great great empathy for and and admiration for the the families of victims who have persevered for 16 years to try to get, bring this to a close i knew the jersey girls and still know the jersey girls well and and had great great admiration for the way they handled henry kissinger when George Bush tried to put him in as chairman of the of that commission. So I hope that struggle will continue and I know in terms of the families of the victims that it will. Now in terms of my work, uh, I'm told that it would be useful to discuss the cases uh, which I have uh, served and been involved in uh, for really uh, pretty close to the last 50 years, but certainly for the last 40 years of my life. Uh, it might be useful for you to have a bit of a, sort of a personal history, so that you can put the context of how I got involved in these, in these matters, these unlikely matters, uh, really, and, um, and understand how it all sort of became a part of my uh, individual soul and searching on, in this lifetime. Um, as a boy, uh, Llewellyn's How Green Was My Valley made an impact on me. It, it, uh, the portrait of the, the preacher, the Welsh preacher in the back of the church with his hand on the shoulder of the boy saying, you know, who had just criticized him about uh, uh, some work he was not not doing. He said, you know, when I was a young man, I dreamed that I could lead an army greater than Alexander's and I could bring truth and justice and happiness to the world. And as I grew older, I found out how much more difficult that was. And ultimately, I moved away from that to the daily tasks that I knew I could accomplish. And I empathized with the boy because as a, as a, as a boy, I had a, the same type of feelings about injustices that I saw around me. The middle class kid, couldn't find local boys to play baseball in the summer heat, so I had to take a brown bag of sandwiches into the ghetto and play with black kids uh, day after day, from my middle-class, working-class family, Irish immigrants. And uh, there it was, for the first time, that I saw rats in a living room. Imagine that. Rats running across the living room, embarrassing Herbie Fields, my host, as we had lunch in between playing. So he threw his shoe at them. And I didn't know people lived like that. Bob Kennedy didn't know people lived like that, and that was why in 1964, when he came to me and asked me to handle, in Westchester County, his campaign as his citizen's chairman, I did so because of the alternative, but was not happy with him as a person. But the Bob Kennedy they killed had seen what he never saw as a child, and he had changed so greatly. And uh, I'll come to that in a bit. He was going to do what had to be done to try to change the social composition of this this great republic. As far as Martin King was concerned, uh, I only knew him the last year of his life. I was a journalist in Vietnam, and uh, kept all my writings and recordings and photographs and film to myself until I returned. And I, I had to return. We had a, a crash landing in a place called Pleiku, and I had injured my, uh, my back and my, my hip. And so I had to, uh, I, I had to, uh, had to return. And I r- wrote a piece for a magazine that some of you may remember called Ramparts. Right? <laughs> Some of you do. Yes, Warren Hinkle and, and even to this day, uh, uh, Bob Shear uh, carried, that, carried that, uh, that struggle, that journalistic struggle forward. In January of 1967, a piece appeared called The Children of Vietnam and it documented by film and word the war crimes that America was committing in Vietnam. This was contrary to what Colin Powell was doing as a young lieutenant uh, and press officer at Milai, where his job and the way he earned his bones was to put forward as much of a, an explanation as he could uh, to cover up that one tragedy, and I saw many similar to that. So I, I did this piece, And uh, Martin King was on his way to Jamaica and he was a subscriber to Ramparts and he saw it and he went through it and saw the photographs and his bodyguard, Bernard Lee, brought back some food and he pushed the food away and he said, "'I can never enjoy a meal again "'so long as this wretched war goes on.'" And then he asked to meet with me And it was that meeting that led to my becoming close to him for the last year of his life. And it was his commitment then, and tears from his eyes, when he saw additional photographic material of the massacres and the slaughters and the burned children, that caused him to oppose the war in Vietnam. And we, we brought 100 war-injured children from Vietnam under a committee of responsibility, and um, Martin never relented in his opposition to that war, even though he was told by everyone around him that it would cost him millions of dollars, and it did. And he was labeled a traitor, and he was attacked viciously by the New York Times and the Washington Post. And he stayed with that position to the end. Now that was one of the reasons in my view, that maybe a primary reason many think, that they killed him. But I think the greater reason was because it was gonna bring half a million people to Washington, they were going to not going to leave. They were going to visit the elected officials, try to change budgetary priorities, and they were going to try to oppose the war and by doing that. And that may be looked upon as naive today, but back in those days, the military was worried. A hundred cities had burned. The French almost had a revolution. They were on the verge of revolution, and if it hadn't been for André Malraux, they would have had their revolution, because Malraux convinced De Gaulle to co-opt the communists and the labor unions and leave the students out to hang. And that ended the French Revolution. But the military were afraid that Martin would lose control over that Washington group, and there would be a revolution on the streets of Washington. So they had to make sure he never got to Washington, make sure that he didn't.
0: You're listening to attorney and author Dr. William Pepper. Today's show political assassinations, and the criminal justice system. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: So they took him out on April 4th, 1968, a year to the day after he delivered his anti-war speech at Riverside Church. And that finished that noble career and left the legacy of which we still strive to achieve uh, today. But they... They finished him, that killed the possibility of that kind of revolutionary movement uh, developing uh, in the in the United States. Anyway, we worked closely together that last year. They killed him, I thought they had the right guy, as naive uh, as I could be, I suppose. Nine years later, 1977, Aberna- Ralph Abernathy, his friend said, I want you to go to the prison with me and I want you to interrogate James Earl Ray. And I thought he went round the bend, and I said, Ralph, what are you talking about? You you think there may be something that has gone astray here in terms of justice? He said, I don't know, I would like you to do that. Took me months to prepare because I thought they had the right guy and never did anything else. Uh, We went up and we saw James in 1978, in August. I interrogated him brutally for five hours. We came away with the strong impression that he was not the assassin. He was a diffident, shy uh, guy who knew very little about guns, one shot himself in the foot with mishandling one, and uh, he was definitely not the assassin. But we didn't know what role he might have played. So I kept going to the, the prison to visit with him. He kept asking me finally, when his lawyer at the time, Mark Lane, dropped out, he kept asking me to represent him and I refused. I said, I have to be sure you had no knowing involvement. That went on for 10 years. Imagine that, 1978, 1988, and all the time he would answer questions and I would go back into Memphis and I would start to gather more and more evidence and more and more belief that something was wrong. So it became a kind of slippery slope for me, that that particular assassination, and so we went on and on. Finally, in 1988, I agreed to represent him. We took the case all the way through the federal system to the Supreme Court, and we were denied. And we had nowhere further, so we thought at that time to go. We were finished. Then a television, uh, trial was held primarily by Thames Television of England and they roped HBO in on the funding of it and we tried that case for 12 days and, and uh, <laughs> a jury came back and found Ray not guilty. It was aired in, in America on the day of anniversary of the assassination. I produced the first book that Bonnie mentioned on uh, orders to kill and Martin's nephew called me and said, okay, now it's time for the family. So the family and I met for over a period of about nine hours in Atlanta, and I opened up all of the evidence that I had. And they said, what can we do? What can we do? I had Because I had written the book, we had lost in court. James Earl Ray died in prison in 1998, In 1999, I suggested we file a civil lawsuit against one of the people who we knew was involved. Man's name was Lloyd Jowers. He was out in the bushes with the shooter and the spotter, and uh, he brought the still smoking rifle into the back of the kitchen of his grill and broke it down. And we had eyewitness evidence against him. He was afraid he was gonna be indicted. Little did he know, (laughs) in these cases that the fix is in, and he had no danger. But We sued him. We had a trial that went on for 30 days, 70 witnesses, all of the evidence that had never before been allowed to be seen or heard by a jury, and it took the jury 59 minutes. 59 minutes they came back and found the government agents of the United States, state of Tennessee, city of Memphis, were responsible for that crime. And there were no media present. They all left. Court TV was going to cover it. Somehow they didn't. They all left. There was no coverage of the trial, as there's been virtually no review of any of the books I've written on the case. Carl Bernstein said, don't be surprised about this. Back in 78, he did a Rolling Stone piece which indicated that the publishing might of the Central Intelligence Agency will make sure that these cases are not brought forward. They are not not heard. So that is the the reality. On the media side, it's not just mainstream media, it's progressive media as well. Uh, Democracy Now!, Amy Goodman, people like Noam Chomsky, will not deal with these political assassinations, neither will they deal, of course, with 9-11, to the extent that uh, they they should deal with them, they just simply don't. And why is that? Well, funding comes from the Ford Foundation, which has been a CIA channel for a very long time, or Bill Moyer's uh, entity, and um, there's a line that they don't cross, and they won't cross. I've come to believe these are not bad people because a lot of the stuff they put out there is stuff American people should know about, and it's good, and it's useful, and Chomsky's analyses are are very helpful and enlightening in certain areas of the world, but when it comes to certain lines, certain areas, they will not go there, and you can't expect them to. I've learned painfully that they... uh, They simply will not. So after that trial was not covered, I continued. We did a second book, Act of State, which went through the evidence of the trial. And um, and that was in 2003. 2016, the final book was published. I had been at this then, on this slippery slope, coming to the end of the slippery slope that started in 1978. I had come to the end of it in June of 2016 when The Plot to Kill King was published. And what it revealed was staggering. It was staggering to me. I took so much evidence under oath and filmed the depositions and insisted that the text of the depositions, the critical evidence, be put in the book itself in the appendices. So no one could say as they would. He took this out of context, or that statement uh, was misinterpreted. The actual evidence is there. And what does it reveal? Well, it reveals something that the world does not know, and most of the world will not know because they don't even know that this book is available. But what it reveals is that J. Edgar Hoover used his number two, Clyde Tolson, to come into Memphis on a regular basis and liaise uh, with the Dixie Mafia uh, and organize the 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 on-the-ground killing of Martin King. It shows that Tolson carried $25,000 in and that money was carried to the prison where James Earl Ray was. James had been profiled, he never knew this, and the money was given to the warden, Swenson, and James was allowed to escape. And then he became part of their, their network. He was, he was under a, a handler whom he knew was Raul, and who I later came to learn was named Raul Coelho, and lived, uh, uh, he was an ex-Portuguese intelligence operator who lived in Yonkers, New York. And he would leave his setup job and do what he had to do. And we had uh, ey- eyewitness evidence of all, of all of this, including carrying the money to the prison because the son of the Dixie Mafia leader, Russell Atkins rode to the prison with his father with the money. So he gave it to the warden. So the, 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 that aspect of the case was very, was, was very clear. Then Martin was killed on April 4, 1968, but not by the gunshot wound that was fired from the bushes. He was hit by a bullet fired by the best shot on the Memphis police force named Frank Strouser, who still is alive, who had lunch with me, but he wouldn't eat. But, ne- <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, on the basis of receiving $500, he came and sat down with me. And we, uh, we, we made him a little uncomfortable, gave him some... Physical inflammation. But uh, the only thing he would admit to was that his, his size shoes is 13 and a half, which was the actual size of the shoe that's in the Plaster of Paris cast uh, going away from the shooting scene uh, on the day of the shooting. Um, but what he didn't know was that a 25 year friendship with another taxi driver who knew him for all that period of time, caused him to, to reveal the truth. My, uh, my informant jumped in the back of his cab after we had the lunch and said, I understand Pepper's gonna have you indicted on the King case because all the evidence now is clear. And Strauser looked visibly agitated, turned around and said, what are they going to get me for, something I did 30 years ago? And then paused and said, or knew about 30 years ago. <laughs> so we, we, we pretty much nailed him down as the, as the shooter, along with other evidence of an informant who saw him practicing with a rifle all day long in the, uh, in the rifle range, the Memphis Police Department, before he left at 3 o'clock to go and take up his position. So the evidence became very, very clear about this whole thing. And then the final straw, Martin King was not killed by that bullet, but he was seriously wounded, gravely wounded, and might, might have died, but he was alive on the operating table in the emergency room. When the head of neurosurgery Dr. Breen Bland came in with two men in suits and said to the operating working team, they weren't operating, they were working, trying to keep him going, said, uh, stop working on that nigger and let him die. And now, get out of here. And he threw them all out of the room. And as they were leaving the room, the surgical nurse, who was the last one out, heard them gather up some spit in their mouths. (laughs) That caught her attention. She turned around and she saw the three men spit on the body of Martin King. And then she saw Dr. Bland take a pillow and suffocate him, put it over his face and deny him life at that point. So Martin King was killed in the emergency room of St. Joseph's Hospital. Oh, he might have died from the bullet wound, but he was still alive at that point in time.
0: You're listening to attorney and author Dr. William Pepper. Today's show, political assassinations and the criminal justice system. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: Now, the interesting nuance of all of this is that Breen Bland was the family doctor for the Adkins, the Dixie Mafia family. And some weeks before the actual killing, shooting and killing, Bland was meeting with the son of uh, Russell Adkins, who the father had died, and the son was working with the head of police and fire, Frank Holloman, to uh, finish the job. And sitting in on that meeting was young Russ Atkins, the same one who rode to the prison with his father. And he remembered, and all of this is under oath now, and he remembered Bland saying at that point, if the bullet doesn't kill him, make sure he goes to St. Joseph's so we can ensure that he will never leave there alive. So we had that separate type of corroboration to the sworn statement that connected Breen Bland directly with the suffocation. All of that is included in the the appendices of uh, of the work on King. So far as I'm concerned and the King family is concerned, this matter is solved. Coretta died, Knowing all of these facts, all of the truth, even though it, citizens of the republic are do not know it, and those of you in this room, most of you are probably hearing about it for the very first time. So that was the Kennedy uh, um, warm-up, in a sense, because uh, Bob Kennedy's. Um, lawyer Larry Teeter died, and I was asked to take on that case. And when I reviewed the evidence against Sirhan Sirhan, it was so powerful, strong in terms of his innocence, that I, I had to say yes to it. And um, so I became Sirhan's lawyer in 2007, I've been his lawyer ever since. What is forgotten about is that Sirhan did not have a, a fair trial at all because his lawyer, was under indictment federal indictment himself and had to do exactly what he was told as he threw the case as he denied the evidence and i laid all of this out in court filings that i'm sure the judges who have denied our motions and our petitions have never read i'm sure they've never read that lawyers who have looked at these filings have said what has happened to the criminal justice system well what has happened is that political assassinations in this country are given the same fate that the truth is with respect to the 9/11 events of this country, the Oklahoma City events of this country, the first bombing at the World Trade Center? All of that are these things are treated the same way, and they're they're just sloughed off. So we took on the Sirhan case and took it all the way through the court system. And as has been said in the introduction, we failed at the Supreme Court level. And we went then, and within the last month, I have filed a petition with the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, one of the few international bodies that has jurisdiction which the United States government must answer because of the Treaty of the Organization of American States. And we filed that petition. It's pending before the Inter-American Commission. Anybody who wants to help at all with that, please feel free to do so. Check out the IACHR, Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, online. Get their communications details. Write to them and say, we understand you are considering this gross miscarriage of justice. Um, Please grant an evidentiary hearing. There has never been an evidentiary hearing for a panel of of citizens to review the evidence of Sirhan's innocence. I had Dan Brown, professor of psychology at Harvard, spend 70 hours with Sirhan, and he came away without any doubt at all. He's one of the experts on mind control in the world. Came away without any doubt hesitation at all to say Sirhan, had been mind controlled through chemicals and hypnosis in a clinic where they held him for two weeks, where he had disappeared for the purpose of uh, being a patsy. And that's what he was. He, he, uh, upon a cue by a woman who was handling him, he got up, He saw the image that he had been shooting at at the rifle range that afternoon, the target, and he didn't see Kennedy. Kennedy was five, six feet in front of him, and he pulled the trigger at that target. He fired two shots, two shots in front of Bob Kennedy. Then he was pinned to the table, his arm was held down, and and the other six shots, he kept pulling the trigger robot-like. Meanwhile, the assassin, Held down behind Bob Kennedy to tie, allegedly tie his shoe, and put the gun up against his back. Fired three bullets, a fourth that went through the shoulder and left, but the third, final bullet behind the right ear, about an inch away, was the fatal shot. And they could never match that that bullet with uh, to uh, the weapon that Sirhan had. It that would be part of the evidence we're talking about. So Bob was hit with powder burn distance shots with a gun pressed up against his back and everyone in sight, every witness said Sirhan was never closer than five or six feet in the front of this target. That's, that's a, a basic piece of evidence, but it's only one, one piece of evidence. So we struggled to try to get the the truth out with respect to that. We have no support from the uh, media at all, who are, just will not critically look at any of these events. The only possibility is, of course, if, uh, if citizens such as are gathered here in the darkness tonight come into the light and make their voices heard uh, so that we may have justice, otherwise, this man will remain in prison for the rest of his life and, and die there. Now, that's the, those are the facts of those two cases. And they relate to the whole corporate, mainstream, media, political uh, tie-ups that affect and will continue to affect uh, the truth about this great American tragedy of 9-11. You know, there was a time in this country back in 1967, I recall, that we, we weren't as foreclosed in terms of getting things into the media, whether it was progressive or even mainstream. I'll just tell you one little anecdote that illustrates it best for me. Bill Atwood was the editor, managing editor, of Look Magazine. He read the Ramparts piece that, Ram- that I wrote, asked to meet with me. I went in to see him. He strode up to me, shook my hand, and said, uh, you'll be interested knowing I had a visitor last week. I said, No, oh, who would that be then? He said, that visitor was Averill Harriman, who flew in from Washington to see me uh, at the request of the President of the United States. I said, what did Governor Harriman want? He said, well... He brought me the president's best wishes, and then he said the president had a favor to ask of me. And What would that favor be then? The favor is that I would never print anything that Bill Pepper wrote. (laughs) And he said, what do you think of that? You're not even 30 years old, and the president of the United States is worried about my publishing something that you wrote? And I said, I'm more interested in what you said to him. <laughs> and, and he said, well, I told him we are gonna see you next week and if we believed what you had to say, and we were gonna publish and give the president my best regards. <laughs> now there was the type of journalist we don't have anymore, really. The problem was the next week He met with Jim Garrison, who came up from New Orleans to discuss the Kennedy assassination, John Kennedy assassination. And Garrison, if I met with Bill for six, seven hours, I don't know, Garrison must have met with him for more, nine hours over dinner. He called Bob Kennedy, Bill Atwood did, called Bobby Kennedy at one o'clock in the morning. And he said, Bob, the District Attorney of New Orleans has just shaken me in my shoes, and he's convinced me that the CIA killed your brother. And Bob's response was, we know that, but I've got to have the presidency in order to open the investigation and prove it. That was 1 a.m., 1.15, 1.20. Bill Atwood had a heart attack at 4 a.m. that same morning, left Look Magazine, except occasionally as a roving editor, he was finished, and he then uh, published Look, of course, published neither my piece nor nor Garrison's piece, and Look has changed, changed its posture and its policies. Mike Wallace interviewed me uh, uh, for lunch at an old restaurant called White's, it used to be on 57th Street. And he started to me about how I was being traitorous to my country by reporting on war crimes that were being committed. And I was, I was much younger, obviously, then, and I got very angry with him, and I almost hit him. And <laughs> I was so furious with this guy, who supposedly was running an investigative journalism. But these are the things that happen that people don't know about. And I work on the King case. I came to to have a military intelligence access which provided me with a lot of information. And I came to know about the role of a Colonel John Downey, CIA as well as Colonel in the Army. And John Downey was the one who was chosen to coordinate the military on the ground if the backup was needed, they had two shooters. If the backup was needed for the civilian sniper, they were going to take Martin out. Uh, the military guys would. So Downey had that role. He, he died. I went to see his daughters. one of his daughters, and she said to me, and I think you might find this interesting because these kinds of insights we don't normally know or hear about. He was the briefer of Lyndon Johnson throughout the war. He would come back every two weeks, once a month, brief the president. She said he used to harangue the president about the futility of the, and the immorality of this war in Vietnam, and why don't we get out? And he would do that every meeting he had with Lyndon Johnson. Johnson ignored him. Finally, one day, he was on his he was on his kick about the war, and Johnson had either had enough or had a bad day or something, but he pounded the table and he said, John, I can't get out of the war. My friends are making too much money. That from the President of the United States. And it says so much about the importance of money leading. Uh, public policy with respect to militarism in this country and it's if anything has gotten so much worse later in time
0: you are listening to attorney and author Dr. William Pepper today's show political assassinations and the criminal justice system I'm Bonnie Faulkner this is guns and butter
2: she said he came home that afternoon he said to his the, her mother, his wife, pack your bags, I'm having myself assigned to uh, the embassy in Canada, I can't continue this kind of participation. And so he showed, a, a uh, as a patriot, he showed a degree of love for the republic and disdain, contempt from the money forces that ruled and, and, and controlled this kind of policy that was costing us such blood and treasure. And off he went. But then a year later, he was brought back as head of the military, uh, 902nd Military Intelligence Group and given the job of coordinating the military backup for the assassination of King. And she said to me, he simply believed Martin King was a threat to the Republic, and that's something uh, that his Pennsylvania roots run very deeply about, and he had to do it. So it's, you, you 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 are confronted with these kinds of gray situations where you can acknowledge the good work that some people do, and yet you have to also look at the evil that they can do. So these heroes we have have to be looked at very carefully, whether they're ex- Vietnam war prisoners who are now viewed as heroes where if you talk to fellow prisoners you get a totally different picture of how they how they uh, how they behaved at the time so it's 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 a compli- it's a complicated very complicated world in which we live because of this once one conversation i had with Nelson Rockefeller i was and i came to know that family cuz at one point, and he instructed me and in how I should behave if I ever would agree to enter politics. I told him I had no real interest in entering politics. This was around the time I had a reform activist group working for uh, um, some years after having worked for Bob Kennedy. And he instructed me that a particular Eighth War Republican Councilman was a good guy so far as he was concerned, because even though I knew and he knew he was a crook, he was, as he said, Nelson said to me, he said, he was our crook, Bill. <laughs> so there is, a dif- there is a difference always that people are able to rationalize. I wanted to meet with um, David Rockefeller before he died. This is uh, not an on public thing, I've said it before, and I dated David's daughter, and knew I'm still friendly, very friendly with with her. And she said, if I set that meeting up, Bill, you, you know he's trying to reconcile with the family and it will break it apart. So I said, don't even think to do that. But the reason I wanted to meet with him was because there was a meeting at Clint Murchison's house in Dallas the night before Jack Kennedy was killed. I don't know a great deal about the John Kennedy assassination. I do know a couple of significant facts. That meeting at Murchison's house was attended by Richard Nixon, J. Edgar Hoover, H.L. Hunt, and the wealthiest oil man in the country at the time. And um, Lyndon came in at about 10 o'clock at night when they were having this party and they all went into Murchison's uh, study, came out about 20 minutes later. Lyndon went up and put his arms around a woman who became a friend of mine over the years, Madeline Brown. She was Lyndon's mistress. She gave him his only son. And Madeline told me that when he put his arms around her, he said to her, after tomorrow, the son of a bitch in Kennedy's will never embarrass me again. The next morning he called her from Fort Worth and said, I'm gonna hear the son of a bitch deliver his last speech. So he was a pawn, he was a player, he was an actor, and he was doing what he had to do at those point, that point in time. And Martin King alienated him to such an extent earlier because of the, or later rather, because of the uh, anti- anti-war position that he did what he, uh, he counseled and did what he had to do to, uh, to Dr. King. So these war stories lead us, I, I think, to have a deeper understanding of the complexity of the problems we face. Bob Kennedy, if he was elected president in 1968, was a different man than the Bob Kennedy I knew. He had been to West Virginia, Kentucky. He had seen shoeless children. He never knew they existed. They, he didn't have that part of his, his early history. I did and benefited from the information. But because he didn't have that He was shocked, and he was determined to do something about it. He was going to end the war in Vietnam. He was going to end the oil depletion allowance. He was going to go back to the 1913 creation of the Federal Reserve entity in the United States. He was going to reopen all of that history because, you see, that's where the real power players started. Irene DuPont, the Mellons, the Rockefellers. J.P. Morgan. In that little island off the coast of Georgia, they created an economic structure that dominates us to this day. And Jack Kennedy knew about it, but Bobby also was determined to look into that and try to turn it around. Therefore, he had to be killed. He couldn't be allowed to live. And Los Angeles was chosen as the site. And for a long time, I wondered why they moved James Earl Ray and the military shooters out of Los Angeles, they were there for weeks. Martin was going to be killed in Los Angeles. And then all of a sudden one day they were shipped out, told to go into Louisiana, and Raul picked up James and dealt with him there. And of course then I, dumb me, realized, well, it wouldn't be a good idea to have two assassinations of this sort <laughs> in the same city within two months, so they had to change the scene and Memphis was chosen for martin and Bobby, of course, was going to be taken out in uh, taken out in los angeles and uh, he was, and it was uh, it was it was well well covered up so that 's the history of my involvement in those cases. Sirhan still survives in prison. We're trying very hard to um, get the Inter-American Commission to consider his case. Um, Whether they will is is another matter. America doesn't have the power in Latin and, and Central America now that it once had. I've spent a lot of 2,000... Uh, the year 2001, 2002, 2003, in Venezuela. I was very close to Hugo Chavez Frias, very close to Hugo. We We were like brothers. I saved his life once from a CIA assassination attempt. And he was a pitcher. He was a baseball pitcher, as was I, and as was Fidel. And I think Fidel was by far the best. And the Cardinals offered Fidel a contract. You may not know this, I'm wondering a little bit. Offered him a contract and he turned it down because he had some other plans. (laughs) And Chavez, one of the last things he said to me when one of the the last meetings I had with Hugo, he said to me, he said, Fidel has told me You have to come, we go take picture at the airport, you go straight to a a field, and we'll see if you can still strike him out. He had me confused with somebody else. I never struck out Fidel Castro, but I was one of two people from Columbia University's team chosen to go play in a Cuban sports festival in 1959, would you believe? And at that point, Fidel used to come to all the games, but I never struck him out. and I remember one of the early nights I met him him, him and Che and Raul, whom I didn't like very much. Um, che was saintly. Fidel was pragmatic and hard. And he, at one point he said to me something he has recently said before he died to a journalist. Uh, I understand. He said to me, I, my plan, my hope is to build a utopia here in my country. Over all obstacles I am determined that I will do that and my people will benefit and thrive. The journalist asked him something of the effect about his uh, regrets. And he said uh, to her, it's a very similar thing. He said, I planned when I started to build a utopia in my country. And I planned that when I was in the Sierra Maestre, when I came back with less than a dozen men to overthrow the tyrant supported by the Americans, Batista. And he said, my plan was ultimately to build a utopia for my people in my native land. And then apparently he paused and said, but I have no time left. To complete that task. And he uh, he died, of course, uh, fairly recently thereafter. When he had told Hugo to have me come and throw against him again, at that point in time, he was 82, and I said, I said to Hugo, if I, I hadn't thrown in years, if I hit him, they'll shoot me on the spot, you know. <laughs> So I didn't take up that offer and I didn't see him again before he died. And I actually didn't see Hugo before he died. He died a very strange death, actually, of an accelerated, aggressive cancer. It made me wonder about how that all of a sudden developed. And I'm reminded of the Jack Ruby experience of developing cancer. All right, enough of that. Thank you very much for coming. I appreciate your time. Carry on, comrades, carry on this struggle. Don't let up and give it to the children and the grandchildren. Carry on, carry on, thank you. Thank you, and thank you for the numbers of you who have come here in support of this, this effort. Please don't let it go, keep it going. And your comrades in New York are right with you all the way. Thank you very much, thanks again.
0: been listening to William F. Pepper. Today's show has been Political Assassinations and the Criminal Justice System. William Pepper is an attorney, and author, and a poet. He is the author of three books on the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, Orders to Kill, An Act of State, and his third and latest book, The Plot to Kill King, the truth behind the assassination of Martin Luther King, Jr. Pepper delivered the keynote address at the 13th Annual 9-11 Film Festival at the Grand Lake Theater in Oakland, California, on September 11, 2017. Why 9-11 Truth Still Matters. Sponsored by the San Francisco 9-11 Truth Alliance at sf911truth.org. Visit Bill Pepper's website at williampepper.com. That's williampepper.com. Email him at wfpintlawoxford at aol.com. That's wfpintlawoxford at aol.com. Today's audio recording courtesy of Ken Jenkins. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GB Radio. <laughs>
1: of your own cypher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life you know what i'm saying look within inside you yourself for peace give thanks live life and release you dig me you got me